Erdogan is as much a product of the reforms of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk as anybody else, even though he's often seen as a kind of uh, rejection of Ataturk and Ataturk's reforms. In the mid-1990s, the mayor of Istanbul was quoted as saying, democracy is like a tram. You ride it until you arrive at your destination, then you step off. That mayor is now president of Turkey, and his critics fear that he believes Turkey has reached its democratic destination. Recep Tayyip Erdogan's rise to power, his consolidation of power, and his ability to shape world events make him one of the 21st century's marquee leaders. But he is currently at risk of losing his re-election battle as rampant inflation, combined with the mishandling of rescue efforts following an earthquake in the south of his country, threatened to derail his chances at another term in office. We are now faced with the question of whether Erdogan could actually lose in the forthcoming election. This week, we recorded the first of a two-part episode on Turkey. This edition covers Erdogan's rise to power, his ideology, the clash between Kemalists and Islamists, and finally, for our patrons, a discussion of what could happen when Turks vote this week. Our guests for this deep dive into Turkey and its mercurial president are Birol Bashkan, professor at Georgetown University and non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. Professor Bashkan has published a number of books, including The Nation or the Ummah, Islamism and Turkish Foreign Policy. We also welcome back Ryan Jongra, a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. He is the author of six books, and his most recent work, The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire, is available to purchase now, and that link is in the show notes. The views he expresses here are not those of the Naval Postgraduate School, the United States Navy, the Department of Defense, or any part of the United States government. If you would like to hear more from Uncommon Decency, you can subscribe. And if you do subscribe, or even if you don't, please rate and review Uncommon Decency wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at UndecencyPod, where you can also send us questions. Um, If you don't like Twitter, and I don't blame you, you can email us at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Finally, please consider supporting the show through our Patreon. This is how we pay for microphones, recording equipment, and other things that keep the show running on a week-to-week basis. So any contribution you make is really important and helps us keep us going. We hope you enjoy this episode and tune back next week for another episode on the Turkish election. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Uncommon Decency podcast. I'm going to start by contextualizing this episode because The Economist this week is running its cover on the Turkish election, calling it the most important election in 2023. Well, we couldn't miss this topic, but it's such a big one that we're actually going to do two episodes on it. So I'm very grateful to our guests this week, Brill Baskan and Ryan Jongra, who is returning to the podcast for the first of two episodes on Turkey. This week, we're going to talk about the rise of Erdogan, uh, his presidency, his foreign policy, his politics, and potentially his future. Francois, over to you, sir. Okay, so Byron, why don't we get us started a little bit by giving us a bit of background on Erdogan. Who is he? What is his background? And how does he ultimately end up in the world of Turkish politics? 
going back to a century ago, uh, the Ottoman Empire was facing a life and survival uh, uh, issue with the rise of the West, uh, and then uh, the, the the problems it posed for the independence uh, of the of the empire. So, uh, three different kinds of uh, uh, movements. Uh, emerged uh, in response to this case. One of them was uh, Islamism. And Islamism uh, suggested that uh, in order to counter the West effectively, we have to untap the, 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 the potential Islam as a religion can provide to the Muslims. So we have to be better Muslims. We have to unite with other Muslims. We have to implement Islam in our lives, in politics, in, in international politics, and in every aspect of life. So Islam uh, is portrayed as the solution for all the kinds of uh, problems that uh, uh, not only Ottoman Empire, but also the whole Muslim world was was facing. Uh, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and then the Republic uh, rose, Islamism went underground in Turkey. Well, I mean, of course, we can, I mean, uh, this is, a, this is the, 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 the general idea uh, uh, that Islamism became kind of an ostracized uh, by the Republic, uh, which were uh, secular in orientation. Uh, the reality is a little bit more uh, uh, different, but I don't want to go into uh, that discussion. Uh, but it was clear that the Republic, uh, from the very beginning, and its leader, Atatürk, uh, wanted to depoliticize Islam uh, in every possible way, uh, portraying Islam as a religion of morality and rituals only, not as a, a, a religion which uh, can provide us uh, policy recommendations. Uh, and the Republic uh, has remained pretty much uh, uh, honest and uh, sorry, loyal to this idea of keeping Islam depoliticized. Of course, uh, Islamism is ostracized, but eventually in the uh, late 20th century, in the last quarter of the 20th century, emerged as a, as, a, as, a, as a potent force, like it did elsewhere in the Muslim world. That's what uh, scholars uh, call religious revivalism or Islamist resurgence. Whatever we call it, it was a fact that this ideology uh, inspired and uh, generated a, a, a moments of its own uh, in contrast to the secular ones uh, like nationalism, like Westernism and, and that. Uh, so Erdogan uh, entered politics, get out of his teenage years and then became a, uh, an adult, like a 20 years old, 21 years old. Uh, Islamism in Turkey had already generated or inspired its own moment. And then the, 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 the the, the big name is also, of course, Nejmetin Arbakan. Uh, we have to mention his name. He published, he, he, he established his own party uh, in the 1970s and uh, began to compete in the in the elections. Erdogan, as a teenager, as a as a, as a young man, entered politics as a member of uh, his his political party. And this political his political party, this political tradition endured uh, some repression. Uh, in Turkey, uh, still very secular, uh, the military, uh, even though in the 1970s, 1980s, Islamists was not the prime target of the military. Still, uh, they were still uh, uh, 
unwanted child of of of, of Turkish modernization. So uh, the party was closed down in 1980. Then it was closed down again in 1997. And in 1970s, 1970, it was not uh, the, the Islamists right now were the prime target because by the 1990s, Islamist party uh, was a uh, was a was a was a a popular party uh, receiving like 22% of the votes uh, uh, won the uh, mayoral elections of is- Istanbul and Ankara and in the 1994 and Erdogan uh, was the mayor of Istanbul with that party with welfare party and it's, it's an Islamist party and and it's because uh, military was uh, panicked uh, and alarmed by the rise of political Islam. It went against uh, uh, political Islam. By the way, uh, this is a theme that you can also see in Egypt and elsewhere in the, in the Islamic world. It's nothing unique uh, in the uh, to Turkey. Uh, political Islam was too powerful, uh, too popular, and uh, questioning the, the existing regimes. Uh, uh, so uh, Erdogan entered politics with this political party and then by the ni- late 1990s uh, became the target of uh, of the the, 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 the the military and to the point of as a mayor of Istanbul he was banned from politics uh, for uh, for for life uh, and uh, uh, at the time when uh, scholarship was declaring the death of political Islam because of the regime's counter-reaction to the rise of uh, political Islam. Erdogan uh, declared himself uh, seceding from political Islam and established a new political party uh, with uh, other uh, figures from the same tradition, uh, Justice and Development Party in 2001. And in in, in next year, the first elections, he uh, le- won a landslide victory and then became the prime minister of Turkey. That is pretty much the background uh, of Erdogan political uh, life. Ryan, when we think about Erdogan, uh, his leadership style, his ideology, who are the, the major political influences that have shaped his view, not just of Turkey, but of the region and Turkey's place in the world? Yeah, I mean, for my part, I mean, I would, I would give a slightly um, different sort of genealogy to Erdogan and his and his politics. I mean, I think that one thing that we discover over the course of his long evolution, and and I think we have to say that Erdogan's own ideological leadings have. Um, let's just say varied a little bit over time. And some of it is perhaps uh, a product of events, um, specifically electoral events, his own, um, you know, uh, as a product of of his time as prime minister and as president. Although it's really clear that, you know, um, as Birol referenced, like he most certainly is primarily the beneficiary of the rise of uh, Islamist um, political movements, uh, a kind of Islamic uh, Islamist partisanship within Turkey that especially um, began to manifest itself in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think, you know, first and foremost, as, as Birol referenced, would would be somebody like Nejmetin Erbakan, uh, who um, is the principal face of Islamic Islamist party politics. Um, who you know really began to uh, have a, 
a general impression upon um, Turkish politics beginning in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And one thing about um, uh, Erbakan and others who um, are generally fall within this constellation of uh, of personalities and and political leanings in Turkey is they were Islamists for sure in that they privileged Islam as a point of reference and as a source of identity uh, in politics. Um, they were also Turkish nationalists, and I think that this is where I think is you know we have to understand a part of Erdogan's not just his ideology but his appeal is that um, while he, you know Erbakan and others especially later in Erbakan's years, placated the idea of Islamic unity um, in and beyond Turkey um, and were, you know, quite overt in placating uh, Islamist theology. Uh, there is a core element in his, Erbakan's early teachings as, and, and, and musings, that is Turkish nationalist in that there is something very specific about the way Turks practice Islam. There's a very, some, there's something very specific about Turkey's relationship to the Islamic world that makes um, being a Muslim in Turkey something special um, and something that's actually exemplary within the broader politics of, of, um, uh, of Islam and uh, and and, Turkish, and and Islamic unity. Added to this is the fact that you know he that Erdogan is the product of you know Turkish education and Turkish sensibilities when it comes to nationalism. Uh, and I think you know one element you see in his maturation as a political figure. Uh, is that he has um, a real affection for history. Um, he has a real attachment to Turkey it, that has been shaped by a lot of the sensibilities of the kind of nationalizing culture that you see developing in Turkey from the 1920s forward. And so, and this is in some ways what's very ironic about Erdogan is that Erdogan is as much a product of the reforms of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk as anybody else, even though he's often seen as a kind of uh, rejection of Ataturk and Ataturk's reforms. And I think, you know, where he, that contradiction is smoothed over is that there is also a vein of, uh, of Islamist writers and polemicists um, who draw upon history and who embrace elements of Turkish nationalism, but it's something that is also has la a layer of varnish that, you know, in, in ideological terms that are still sort of couched as being Islamist or Islamist in their orientation. And, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, here like um, Necip Faisal Kusukurek, uh, who's a somewhat obscure figure outside of Turkey, but somebody who's very, very prominent within Islamist circles in Turkey, somebody who's um, Erdogan himself has often talked about as being a prime ideological force in his life. So, I mean, if we're going to understand who er Erdogan is today, what I would say is that Erdogan is um, the byproduct of lots of different ideological 
persuasions or sort of ideological positions or partisan positions in Turkey. But he has very successfully assimilated aspects of these different, you know, these different tropes in his political career and in the shaping of his own persona. So um, moving on, you know, maybe staying a bit in the space of, of political ideology and moving also a little bit in the world of public policy, what does Erdoganism mean in practice? What does he have to show for after those you know, nearly 20 years in office? Um, what exactly are the things he's proud about, he's showing on, on his platform at the moment, um, things that are above his legacy, things that people even you know are, are grateful for and things which are a bit more controversial, um, uh, starting with uh, viral. Uh, well, uh, that's a big question. Uh, uh, economically speaking, in terms of economic policy, Erdogan pursued uh, neoliberalization of economy that uh, started in Turkey in the 1980s, uh, like it, it did in the United States, in the United Kingdom. Uh, something uh, a former uh, prime minister of Turkey, Turkut Özal, uh, started. Liberalization means that total integration with the capital's economy, privatization of state-owned uh, uh, enter- enterprises, uh, uh, and uh, uh, fully implementing whatever, uh, so withdrawing the state from the economy except for the supervisory role. I guess in terms of economic policy, he's a neoliberal. Uh, he's uh, uh, he's the one who uh, pushed uh, a process that Turgut Özal started to the fullest extent. Uh, I can give you uh, a stat for that. Uh, for example, in the 1990s, late 1990s, uh, in the top among the top 500 uh, 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 biggest, largest uh, industrial companies of Turkey, uh, there were some 45 of them were state owned, and out of those 45, five or six of them were in the top 10 uh, largest. So the, the, the Turkey state was an employer, uh, was an active economic player in the economic field. But by the uh, uh, to, nine, to 2018, uh, I could count among the top 500 only 14 state-owned enterprises, which are yet to be privatized. Uh, and most of them are not even in the, in the top 100. So Erdogan uh, pushed privatization to the fullest extent. In that regard, uh, many Turkish political economists uh, uh, call his period is a, a, a product of neoliberal uh, economic world, uh, world order. But Erdogan did not fully, uh, Erdogan uh, brought his own contribution to that model how? Because neoliberalism, when it's implemented uh, as, a, as an economic policy, produces a lot of losers as well, especially inequality increases, which also happen in Turkey. Uh, inequality, Gini coefficient, if you look at Gini coefficient, uh, increased, uh, uh, deteriorated inequality under Erdogan. But what Erdogan did, uh, which is different from elsewhere uh, somehow, uh, he, because of his connections with the religious groups in Turkey, he could uh, uh, mobilize them. He could somehow open the space for them to provide some social and welfare services uh, to the people. 
that the state is withdrawing from those services. But by letting and encouraging the state groups, actively encouraging them to venture in these social and welfare services, I guess uh, he somehow managed to soften the negative impact of neoliberal economy. To, the, to, to that extent, even though he, he implemented that model, still he could keep up his, uh, his popularity because he managed to install safety wells. Part of a state, part of it, uh, non-NGOs. For example, if you go to the uh, earthquake area today, you see a lot of NGOs, uh, most of them religious, providing services to the people. So it is alleviating the negative uh, impacts uh, that uh, neoliberal economic policy. Uh, so it's it's a compromised neoliberalism. Uh, in terms of economic policy, yes, it's neoliberal. But in terms of social policies of the state, I guess... Uh, uh, he he combined uh, neoliberalism with kind of a social state uh, uh, model. Uh, 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 this is, I guess, primary uh, uh, feature of Erdoganism. Uh, the others uh, uh, can change. Erdogan is a is a is a is a is a is a, is a, is a politician. He changes his policies from time to time. Uh, uh, Sometimes he can uh, be an Islamist, sometimes he can be a nationalist, sometimes he can be a universalist, <laughs> sometimes he can, uh, he supports European Union membership, European unity. Sometimes he is pro American, uh, very, very pro American. Sometimes he is pro Russian. So I don't think that in terms of foreign policy, for example, I, uh, there are general patterns, but also he proves himself to be uh, a maverick. He, he, he can change positions, he can change uh, uh, he can change his, his, his status. But in terms of uh, 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 foreign policy, if Erdogan means anything, it's Machiavellianism. It's extreme opportunism uh, and extreme pragmatism, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't follow some ideological prescription. I, 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 I just published a book and then I claimed that during the Arab Spring, for example, he pursued an ideological uh, foreign policy. And But he also knows when to stop that. He can be very, very pragmatic uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to his own political survival. I don't think that his ideology is more important uh, than political survival for the, for him. So in that regard, he's a, he's a totally Machiavellian and uh, 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 maybe maybe I should stop uh, here and uh, give Ryan his own. So yeah. I think I think that's a nice segue for, for Ryan to talk about foreign policy. Um, you know, there was a moment where we were talking about neo-Ottomanism, mainly because I think people wanted to use the word Ottoman when talking about foreign policy. Uh, you know, there's been very di many different phases of analysis, and I think uh, Biro was pointing it out. Um, yeah, how would you describe a kind of foreign policy aspect of Erdogan? Is it is it opportunistic, or is there some kind of general guiding lines here and there? Um, I think the the easiest way to explain it, for sure, and I think it's it most certainly has a great deal of truth is that he's deeply, deeply opportunistic, especially uh, as the stakes in domestic politics and even in foreign policy have gone up, especially over the last 10 years or so. 
And so uh, I think Viral is absolutely right. I mean, I think that um, he is somebody who has shown time and again a willingness to forfeit maybe some of his ideological um kind of priorities or his, you know, or at the very least, you know, his ideological upbringing for the sake of his own political position um, to attain some sort of advantage, both domestically and internationally. And I think, you know, you know, personally, I think when you think about Turkish foreign policy in the long durée, um, there most certainly seems to be a kind of dissonance in his tenure, that we look at the early part of his tenure, we see Erdogan playing, um, number one, a somewhat more, um, you know, kind of modest role in the promotion of Turkish foreign policy, um, especially during the first decade of his rule, where um, he's not as much of a front man uh, he's, you know, there is something that seems like a broader institutional um, uh, push or kind of um, engagement in the the creation of Turkish foreign policy, you know, and this is a time period, especially in during the early 2000s, and then kind of in the first couple of years of the 2010s, you know, Turkey presenting itself as a far more constructive actor, uh, an actor engaged in the building of relationships, the desire to um, cultivate different avenues of, uh, of engagement through soft power to broaden its influence, and more importantly, um, elevate its status internationally. Um, now, most certainly during this period of time, the Ottoman Empire was referenced a lot, and it's during this period of time that neo-Ottomanism as a concept becomes something uh, that is bandied about a lot, not just inside of Turkey, but more importantly, outside of it. But it's a kind of reference that was that I think changes over time, um, that the idea of the uh, you know the AKP administration behaving in a way that's neo-Ottoman was was projected in a far more positivistic light that the Ottoman Empire had a positive impact on its on its immediate periphery and within the lands that it previously governed as a you know a source of stability and growth and stature and all of that and Turkey is the central is cast as the central hub you know within this you know framework of the ways in which you know, whether it's North Africa or the Balkans or, you know, the Arabian Peninsula or the Caucasus or wherever, you know, within the former Ottoman lands, they all share a kind of common history or common set of ties. There's a common sense of, uh, of belonging and a kind of, and a, a sense of interconnectivity and Turkey's at the center of it. Um, now the connotation of neo-Ottomanism has changed markedly, especially within the last 10 years where, uh, and and you see this not just simply outside of Turkey, but you see it even in Turkey itself, that the Ottoman Empire is increasingly cast as uh, ha having been a, a power in the a military sense. And that this heritage of, of, of Turkey having been a military power serves as a point of reference and even a source of inspiration for different elements of Turkish foreign policy today. And I think it's undeniable that 
at the very least, Erdogan is very comfortable with this idea and has, you know, used it as a way of explaining and justifying his own more recent um, policies that have a, a, a much more of a, uh, a hard power kind of um, turn to it, whether it's in Syria or in Iraq or in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, that, you know, the Ottoman Empire and its, you know, um, its status of having been, uh, a, you know, the, the source of great military strength and, you know, and might is something that, you know, Turkey aspires to. Now, I mean, I think in terms of Erdogan and again, sort of thinking about him ideologically, uh, I think at, you know, it's hard to say to what extent he's a, a genuine romantic nationalist or somebody who really understands political branding. And I think, you know, it, it's probably maybe a little bit of both. Um, I think the most important thing, perhaps, is that people have responded, you know, to both of these turns within Turkey itself. There are people who have been energized you know, by this idea of placating the Ottoman past as a point of reference for Turkey's current and future foreign policy. Beryl, a few years ago, you wrote an article in the uh, Cairo Review of Foreign Affairs, I believe, um, describing Turkey's foreign policy since the Arab Spring as a pan-Islamist foreign policy. I wondered if you could just sort of talk us through your thoughts on that, the history behind that pan-Islamist foreign policy. Okay, I mean, uh, uh, pan-Islamism means pan-Islamism. Uh, Pan-Islamism emerged as an idea in the 19th century, which was again against the Western aggression and imperialism, which pretty much suggested that all Muslims should unify against this Western aggression and preferably under the same political uh, political unity. Of course, it, ha- it has never happened, uh, but it, that idea is still resonates among uh, Islamists a lot. So it, in terms of idea, in terms of a, a policy, uh, it is part of Islamism. Uh, you cannot really dissociate Islamism from pan-Islamism. So Islamism preaches pan-Islamism. So uh, that's in terms of foreign policy uh, prescription, uh, that all Muslims, Muslim countries should have uh, solid relations, better relations, stronger relations in, in economy, in politics, should coordinate their policies in international affairs. This is the prime prescription of of, of, uh, of Islamism. So how did this work out during the during the Arab Spring? Well, not that much. Uh, uh, it sort of entered into the rhetoric of Turkish. Uh, 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 foreign policy makers, but in a much more subtle way. How? Um, Islamism in Turkey, I'm speaking of Islamism in Turkey, uh, not only preached uh, this pan-Islamist ideal, but also uh, suggested its own uh, explanation of why the Muslim world is disunited. Uh, If you look at the uh, Islamic organization uh, uh, for example, there are 50-some Islamic countries. So Islam, despite Muslims are declared brothers and should unify, still we are living in a world where Muslims are 
divided into 50-something states, right? So why is this the case? Why Muslims are disunited? Why Muslims cannot unify their foreign policies in international affairs? So this question uh, kept the Islamists of Turkey busy for the last 100 years. And then this, the, the explanation they came up with this, the, the following. So, uh, well, once upon a time, the Western imperialists and Western powers were controlling much of the Muslim world, except for Turkey, Iran, and, and maybe Afghanistan. Uh, almost all Muslim world was under the Western imperialism, right? Before Western imperialists withdrew from the Muslim world, they installed puppet regimes uh, to continue their uh, hegemony throughout the Muslim world. So this was the explanation they came up with. What about Turkey? What about Iran? So the Islamist explanation was that, yes, uh, there was no Western imperialism in Turkey. Westerners never ruled Turkey. But in, 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 in a country like Turkey, they helped westernized elites uh, to stay in power, to come to power. So if you if you read uh, Islamist conspiracy of the early Ottoman Empire or, or early Republic, there is this constant theme. Uh, uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the founder of the Republic, is uh, made a deal with the British. So he could come to power. Not he fought his way through through independence, but but he made a secret deal with the British. So if I I don't know how much you are following the the the, 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 the political debate in Turkey, but there is this discussion of, for example, Lausanne Treaty. What is Lausanne Treaty about? So all Islamists believe that there are secret uh, articles of the Lausanne Treaty, and in that Lausanne Treaty, uh, Lausanne, which uh, 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 there are, there are things that Atatürk promised to the British or the French, so so that to keep Turkey within the under the influence of the of the Western Western fall, so the the whole uh, explanation, historical explanation, is conspiratorial. The conspiratorial is that it is the U.S. and Europe which is really controlling the regimes across the Muslim world, and that's why they can keep them disunited, fragmented, and thus control them. So the Islamism is 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 pretty much like. Um, uh, 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 that's a Leninist uh, uh, term. Is is the uh, front guard of 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 uh, pan-Islamism? In other words, it is the political party which is re which is going to reunify the Muslim world, right? And uh, if you read, for example, Ahmed Davutoglu, which who was a foreign minister uh, under Erdogan, and also he was a very influential in, 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 in driving Turkish foreign policy. If you really read his stuff, you will see that the Arab Spring really did not start in Tunisia, but in Turkey. How? Uh, by Justice and Development Party, Islamists, coming to power and kind of dismantling the Western elite uh, from power. And what Arab Spring was doing was sweeping away all these Western puppet regimes and creating an opportunity space for Islamists to come to power. So what is going to happen is that if we let the Arab protests sweep away all the regimes corrupt Western puppets regimes in the, in the, in the Middle East. Uh, the argument went that 
they will bring to power those people who are willing to cooperate, who are willing to coordinate their foreign policy in international affairs. So the Arab Spring, through, during the Arab Spring, Turkey, under uh, uh, Justice and Development Party, embraced almost all protests, even in Bahrain. And why Bahrain is important? Because the Gulf states with which Erdogan had really great relations were very sensitive about Bahrain. Uh, even in Bahrain, you can see statements of Erdogan making uh, a call uh, to the king of Bahrain to listen to the demands of his people. Uh, that happened in Libya, that happened in Tunisia, that happened in Egypt, in, in Syria. Even in Syria, Turkey is involved in, uh, in, in a civil war and paid a heavy, heavy price for that and still continuing to pay a heavy price for that. I guess the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, what drive, what drove the Turkish foreign policy maker during the Arab Spring was a belief, a belief that the time has come for these Western puppet regimes to be swept away and uh, Islam has come to power across the Middle East so that we are going to realize this long-term health a long time held belief uh, that the Muslims are going to unify. So that is the historical moment. I, uh, I, I, I think that that's why uh, we, my quarter, uh, claimed that it, uh, uh, during the Arab Spring, Turkey pursued a foreign policy, which is Islamist, because it is driven by a belief that uh, that the Arab Spring was sweeping away those corrupt Western puppet regimes. Do you, either of you, and I'll start with Ryan here, do either of you anticipate the Kemalists making a comeback or has Erdogan's long grip on power reshaped Turkey indelibly? You know, it's a, it's a really good question and it's certainly something that has been the source of some discussion in Turkey. There was, you know, very recently um, a wonderful panel um, that uh, Nick Danforth convened via the Greek think tank, Greek think tank, um, Elia Map, on the issue of Kemalism today and the notion of post-Kemalism, the idea that, you know, somehow between the 1990s, you know, into the early 2000s, there was a, a a movement to try to reshape Kemalism or moderate aspects of Kemalism that I think history has proved to be somewhat um, extreme or having been somewhat flawed um, as a way of preserving it and as a way of of maintaining it as a force in contemporary Turkish politics. I, I think the short answer is that um, Kemalism is ultimately an ideology that at its you know, root, at, in terms of its basics, is relatively supple in the sense that you know, at one element of it, we're, Kemalism is about the extreme importance of the state and the you know the the promotion of a state centric um, uh, framework for politics, a state centric framework for society, uh, and then at the same time the absolute paramount importance of nationalism, Turkish national identity, uh, as a a source for national consensus 
as the inspiration for national culture uh, and a kind of a sense of 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 let's say nation building or kind of the the project of maintaining and perpetuating you know Turkey's um, unification, its greatness, and and so on and so forth. Now, I I think uh, should let's say the opposition win. So do we have a scenario, and and I should say up front, I mean, I don't, um, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I've, I'm really terrible at handicapping uh, Turkish domestic politics, um, but if there is some sort of world that is upon us where Erdogan leaves office, the AKP falls, um, I think Kemalism will most certainly be back as a much more forceful presence in Turkish politics, but it's likely that it will probably have to adapt. It will have to adapt uh, in a couple of different ways. One is because of pressure within the opposition, most notably among um, Kurdish supporters of the opposition. Um, I think the other ways it may have to adapt is that institutionally in Turkey, and even I think society at large, uh, I think large portions of the of the country have internalized aspects of Erdogan's um, uh, outlook, um, aspects of his politics, aspects aspects of his rhetoric, and I think um, that's something that will change the ways in which Kemalism is at least um, presented or is um, is manifested in popular politics and popular culture. And I'll, I'll just use one really quick example. You know, um, Erdogan has popularized the notion of a, as he calls it, a milli approach towards economy, culture, politics, foreign policy. milli meaning national and local or national and native. Now, I mean, this is, and in at its base form, a very nationalist way and very populist way of pitching things. I think that um, rhetoric like that is probably here to stay, and that is undoubtedly uh, Erdoganist in its origin. You know, in terms of its its framing, I I could see you know a, a, a an administration where Kemalism you know, plays a really big role in the politics and rhetoric of the time. I could see something like that you know, staying as a fixture of, uh, of rhetoric. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, it will be really contingency driven. I think it, you know, when we look at the, the short term, um, you know, Turkey is headed towards, uh, you know, a, a rather uncertain place. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't discount Kamalism making a comeback, but it's, you know, it's certainly not, um, it's not faded. Well, uh, Adding to what Ryan, uh, what, what Ryan uh, said, uh, uh, as uh, I mean, Kemalism uh, uh, is not a potent ideology right now. Like, for example, even the party he established, Republican Party, is that a Kemalist party? Uh, well, I I don't know. I mean, I don't. Well, 
Mustafa Kemal Atatürk is loved by many people in, in, in Turkey, no question about that, except for really ultra-Kurdish nationalists and uh, some uh, Islamists uh, and some uh, uh, ultra-leftists uh, uh, who see him as a, a just a small bourgeois uh, protector. Uh, so except for these uh, marginal Uh, of their own groups, uh, he's beloved by almost everybody in Turkey. But as a historical figure, not as a as, a, as an ideology. Uh, uh, so there are some general uh, uh, general uh, ideals he can uh, he can inspire. Like for example, uh, to, 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 for Turkey to be a secular uh, republican. Uh, state. But other than that, uh, what Kemalism of 1930s, I don't see any political movement embracing that kind of a Kemalism, except for very tiny groups. And they will most likely never come to power. Uh, today, Republican People's Party is uh, cooperating with the Kurds, with the Kurdish party. Uh, the Kurds, uh, this moment, declared that we are going to support Kılıçdaroğlu in the rep- presidential election. Uh, today, uh, within that uh, coalition Kılıçdaroğlu established, we have uh, three former Islamists uh, who are who have really, really trouble with the Atatürk past of Turkey, including uh, Davutoğlu and also uh, Saadet Partisi, Karamolluoğlu. They have They don't understand, they don't look at the Mustafa Kemal in the way CHP does. So is CHP Kemalist? So is, if CHP comes to power, is the Kemalist party? I don't think so. So uh, Kemalism of the 1930s, uh, well, if you call it post-post Kemalist, I am fine with that. But what is original in that post-post Kemalism Uh, with, I mean, if you compare that Kemalism with the Kemalism of, with the historical Kemalism of the 1930s, 1940s, they are different animals. They are different ideologies. Uh, and as Ryan said uh, very well, I mean, uh, you can even find in Erdogan's certain terminology remnants of Atatürk, right? Yerli ve Milli again. This, you can say, okay, this is Atatürk-inspired too. Uh, so here, I guess... Uh, I think as an ideology, as a, as a, as a solid ideology, as a, as a, as a consist, internally consistent uh, ideology, I don't think that Kemalism will come to power in Turkey. Uh, there is no political party embracing such a hardcore Kemalist uh, 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 as an ideology. So uh, it's pretty much like Islamism of Turkey, which is embracing very different uh, Uh, very different uh, currents, and these ideologies are also changing over time. Uh, but as a as a potent ideology of its own, I don't think that Kemalism exists in Turkey. Uh, even JHP is not a Kemalist party, in my view. Uh, what other party exists as a Kemalist? So who, Kemalism once uh, exists in the military, hardcore, top brass, in the judiciary, but uh, they are. Uh, uh, pretty much uh, marginalized even in the military where they have been very strong uh, I mean I don't think that the Turkish military is Kemalist anymore uh, top brass of ju- Turkish judiciary is Kemalist anymore universities are Kemalist anymore uh, 
I mean, if it is an ideology, its adherence or its its it, 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 the people who embrace that ideology are nowhere in in, in terms of influential uh, positions. So there will be no comeback. Well, we'll have to come back and see how it all plays out. Um, and that episode after the election will be released, um, just a few days after the vote is held. Um, so you'll be able to get Ryan and Burrell's analysis of the new president or the returning president on that occasion. But for now, thank you both for joining us for this interesting episode, a really, really fascinating topic to get a deep dive into Erdogan, into Turkish politics, its history, its present and indeed its future. So thank you for joining me and we'll be back with more Uncommon Decency next week. Well, Beryl and Ryan are out. Francois and myself are in. Uh, that was a truly fascinating conversation, just covering so much ground about Erdogan's rise to power, his governance style, his ideology, both on the domestic front and from a foreign policy perspective. And there are a number of things that, that stood out to me, but I think an overarching theme uh, that emerged when we sort of talk about Erdogan, when we talk about Turkey, is of course his his pragmatism, or indeed as Beryl put it, his Machiavellianism. Francois, what were your takeaways from the episode? Obviously, you know, I'm I'm coming from this from an outsider's perspective. The the you know the headlines on Turkey has been tensions with Greece. It's been those seemingly pointless conversations with the EU that go nowhere. Uh, more problematically, there's a lot of um, tensions around uh, secularism in France, which um, Erdogan exploited for for um, domestic gains and strategy he's been doing time and time again. But what is interesting and something we shouldn't forget in all of this is, especially in the kind of early half of, of his time in office, um, there was this kind of reformist drive in his... A presidency, which kind of, well, at the time, prime minister. Um, and um, that stuff kind of put under the radar the, the Islamist edge to, to, to him that was always around. Um, what's interesting is, you know, he's remembered as one who, you know, liberalised the Turkish economy. But at the same time, I was thinking about it while, while we were talking, talking about this conversation. Um He's also the, the, the person, the, the leader who saw the, the the lira collapse because of his, you know, uh, complete mismanagement of a central bank and nominating his 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 nephew. Um, was his nephew? Was his son-in-law? Uh, anyways, he's been nominating people to get to get his way on the central bank, leading to predictably leading to disaster. Um, so you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed and complex picture here. Um, so yeah, a really amount of paradoxes, you know, of possibly the leader who has gone furthest in in getting Turkey into this kind of uh, European space, but also one which has been burning a lot of bridges, but also still manages to get this kind of um, this political capital in Europe because Turkey is such a strategic um, uh, partner in the region. So truly interesting to add a lot of nuance to a character which is increasingly being depicted in quite black or white terms. Yes, and sort of thinking back to the previous conversation we had about Erdogan's or the Erdogan doctrine uh, and his foreign policy, we 
talked, I think, at the time about how it seemed as though Turkey was being isolated due to some of the actions and policy decisions of President Erdogan, um, Greece being one that you've mentioned, but also uh, tensions with Europe and indeed within NATO. But recently, we've just sort of seen a flurry of diplomacy um, by the Turkish foreign minister and Turkish diplomats uh, to really sort of revamp relations, not only with the Gulf states, with with, uh, Syria most recently. Um, We're seeing that pragmatism, that adaptability that perhaps sort of defies definition or the sort of black and white labeling that we've typically come to see in commentary about Turkey, about President Erdogan, um, as it continues to sort of patch up relations. And I think probably the most notable one, of course, last year was um, Turkey and Israel uh, making a lot of progress, their bilateral relationship after many, many years of not having uh, diplomatic relations uh, due to an incident involving a Turkish vessel and Israeli special forces from a year that I can't precisely recall at this moment in time. I think another element from this conversation that I find quite fascinating sort of learning a lot about was this discussion of, you know, Turkey is in its centenary year as an independent non-Ottoman state, shall we say. But obviously, culturally and historically, it's, it's an old and proud nation. But this conversation about the legacy of Kamal Ataturk and how it's very much, depending on the way you view it, it's, it's being slowly squeezed out of certain public institutions secularism is being squeezed out of public institutions. Um, And really, when you sort of take these things into account and then consider Erdogan's influence, it's becoming clear that if he is to win another term, he is to Turkey in the 21st century what Ataturk was to Turkey in the 20th. And part of what will shape that legacy is what happens on this weekend, of course, because we didn't talk too much about it, but there's been some concern that the election um, hasn't been fair and could end up poorly uh, as well. And there's a kind of global context to this, obviously with the the election in 2020 in the US, uh, more recently the election in Brazil. So you know, there's a bit of a precedent behind all of that. So this could really be a kind of make or break moment and the way we approach Ataturk because obviously we we create this kind of teleology of, of in politics where you know thing decisions lead to this kind of culminating moment um you know I it, it could just be that he's going to try and get as much of an advantage as possible um while staying short of you know more aggressive uh, measures but I think this is kind of could be really a break a break or uh um, or make a moment for him and I'll be interested to see how he reacts to that um, and also for the opposition as well because they've been you know this might feel like their best shot in a very long time um, and they've united everyone behind one single candidate and we didn't quite talk about how difficult it has been but that in itself is a feat um, there's been one or two attempts for someone to run on their own and then they've been pushed back into a fold because there's a sense that this election is quite momentous. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, and we'll be back to cover it with Ryan and Beryl next week. So until then, Francois, thank you so much for joining me again, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for inviting me.